Welcome to the Theological Touchpoints podcast. I'm Julian. The focus for this episode is Touchpoints at the intersection of biblical theology and everyday life. We looked last time at some of the core ideas of conditional immortality. While I certainly didn't exhaust every aspect of the view, it should have been sufficient for you to begin to get a handle on what conditional immortality is and what those who hold it teach. I don't plan on spending more time defining it, except as necessary in refuting it. As we discussed in that episode, conditional immortality departs from the traditional view of hell in three ways. First of all, conditional immortality does not hold that man was created immortal. Man is described as being created mortal, that is, without an eternal soul, a state only changed when he puts his faith in Christ, thus, conditional immortality. Immortality is granted on the condition of faith. Secondly, conditional immortality separates between the eternality of hell and the eternality of the human soul. Passages that speak of eternal fire and eternal judgment are interpreted as meaning that hell is eternal, but the sinners in it are not. In terms of what hell is, conditional immortality proponents believe much the same as we do. But in terms of who will be in hell, they depart from the traditional view, saying that hell as a place will exist eternally, but the sinners in it will not. They will eventually cease to exist. They will eventually be annihilated. Third, conditional immortality redefines what everlasting punishment is. This is similar to what we were just talking about, but there's a bit of a different nuance here. What we were just talking about focuses on the language uh, pertaining to the place of hell as being an eternal place, and they would say just because the place is eternal doesn't mean the people are in it eternally. What we're talking about here is the language of Scripture where it talks about everlasting punishment, everlasting judgment, uh, where it's specific, where it's speaking specifically of the judgment and of those experiencing the judgment as being everlasting, as the judgment is everlasting. And they would say judgment is eternal in the sense that it cannot and will not be undone. They say eternal judgment means that there's no coming back after the judgment. Rather than understanding eternal punishment as meaning ongoing, unending punishment, conditional immortality says that the punishment of hell is everlasting in that there is no undoing the judgment. So that's a synopsis of what we talked about in the previous episode. Again, if you want more of the details on that, you want to take a listen to that episode. And again, I would recommend doing that before moving into this one because they are somewhat sequential. They build on each other and you'll understand this best and you'll get the most out of this if you take these episodes in order. At the end of the last episode, I left you with the question, is conditional immortality biblical? And promised to return to that question again. That's before us in today's episode. So this question, is conditional immortality biblical? By this, I do not mean, is it compatible with Scripture, but rather, is it what Scripture asserts? This is an important distinction. The question is not, is it compatible with Scripture? Can we fit it into Scripture? But rather, the question we need to be asking of this view and any view is the question, is it what Scripture asserts? Is it what is clearly taught in Scripture and that's the most plain, most natural reading, most natural understanding of the text? Many things can be fit into Scripture that do not arise from it. Truly, biblical Christianity is not built upon that which is compatible with Scripture, but instead on that which Scripture asserts, that which is most plainly taught within the pages of Scripture itself. The first fundamental flaw of conditional immortality is that it injects its doctrine into Scripture rather than deducing it from Scripture. Yes, many passages are cited, but not cited in context and not used in a way that harmonizes the whole of Scripture. 
We'll get into the scriptures and the language more here in a bit. First, I want to deal with some of the arguments straight on. The first aspect of conditional immortality that we discussed is their belief that humans are not immortal by nature. They would base this somewhat on 1 Timothy 6.16, which says that God alone has immortality, and they would say that since God alone exists eternally, all humans are mortal. God is the only one who's immortal. God's the only one who's eternal. Therefore, all humans are created mortal. But interpreting it this way is problematic, largely because it precludes everyone from having eternal life, whether or not they're believers. If 1 Timothy 6 indicates that God alone is eternal, then no believer can expect eternal life for himself. And that's certainly not biblical. If, then, this passage doesn't exclude eternal life for the believer, it must not be used to say that the unbeliever will not exist eternally. Nothing in this text leads us to think that the believer will experience eternal life while the unbeliever will cease to exist. And to tie this back to what I was just saying about uh, the difference between is it compatible with Scripture versus is it what Scripture asserts, this phrase, God who alone has immortality, is nowhere connected to hell or the eternality of the human soul or the eternality of the judgment. We don't have any text that says God is immortal, humans are mortal, and will cease to exist when they die. The context of 1 Timothy 6 is much different. It's doxological and uh, is not dealing with the question of hell. And so to to bring this into the conversation, um, over and against texts that seem to indicate otherwise is a misuse of Scripture. It's more likely that 1 Timothy 6 refers to God's existence from eternity past. God is immortal in the sense that there was never a time that he didn't exist. If so, this is not focused on God's eternal future existence, but his pre-existence, by which it is proper to say that he alone is immortal. Taken this way, we conclude that this is not speaking of eternal judgment or of eternal life, and thus does nothing to inform our understanding of human immortality. In short, 1 Timothy 6 does not indicate that we are, as Edward Fudge says, wholly mortal. Rather, when Genesis speaks of us being made in God's image and becoming living beings, It has in view that we are each given a soul that will never perish. God created us with eternal souls. This is further enforced by John 5, 28-29. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This speaks of a future resurrection of all mankind, whether good or evil, righteous or wicked. All men will be resurrected and face the judgment. All will hear his voice and come forth, some to the blessings of heaven, some to the torments of hell. If it is true, as conditional immortality advocates purport, that the human soul is wholly mortal, how do we explain this resurrection? Resurrection of the righteous makes sense, but what about the resurrection of the wicked? They are resurrected to a judgment, a judgment in which, according to conditional immortality, they are annihilated. This in contrast to the righteous, who are resurrected to eternal life. The asymmetry in the conditional immortality interpretation is awkward at best. This passage sets up a parallel between those who are resurrected to life and those who are resurrected to condemnation, who come out of the graves uh, post-mortem, post-death. They are resurrected and judged and sentenced, in the case of the sinner, to eternal death, eternal judgment eternal condemnation. 
Similar to this, Acts 24.15 speaks of the resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. I suppose we could interpret this and John as speaking of a temporary resurrection wherein the wicked are judged and again sentenced to death. But this is a strange interpretation, forcing the text into a view of hell that is novel to the scriptures. What about the second idea, the separation between the eternality of hell and the eternal suffering of the human soul? Should we understand everlasting fire to indicate only the fire itself is eternal? Or does that also imply that those thrown into it will endure for all eternity? The latter understanding follows the simpler reading of the text and is the clear implication. Everlasting fire will be endured eternally. That hell itself is eternal is undisputed. The Gospel of Matthew speaks of everlasting fire and everlasting punishment, Mark speaks of eternal condemnation and the fire that shall never be quenched, and the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Paul talks of everlasting destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Hebrews says those who abandon the gospel will experience eternal judgment, and Jude talks about eternal fire and the blackness of darkness forever. Revelation says the torment of the lake of fire will continue forever and ever. But again, in understanding this view, we need to recognize conditional immortality doesn't deny that hell is eternal. They simply deny that anyone will be in it eternally. Those who believe conditional immortality point out that all of these texts describe the place as eternal, but don't necessarily state that the persons in hell are eternal. Does the Bible permit this understanding? If we isolate these texts, perhaps... It is an unnatural understanding, however, to think that these passages, which are intended to warn the sinner of the consequences of his sin, are speaking of an eternal fire that the sinner will never endure. Eternal fire is not necessary if the judgment is not also eternal. So, yes, you can squeeze the aforementioned verses into the annihilationism mold, but it's a forced and uncomfortable fit. Beyond that, other scriptures teach that sinners will inhabit hell eternally. Four passages in Matthew say that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. These describe two responses to the judgment that's being endured, sorrow and anger. These are described as continual ongoing actions by those who are inhabiting hell. These are not momentary actions or momentary responses, but are perpetual as those who are in hell mourn the consequences of their sins. Another potent text is Revelation 14, 9-11. If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. The phrases, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these two phrases are significant for our discussion. First, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Forever and ever is indisputable. This is definitely speaking of eternity future, of unending time, unending future, eternal future. But what does the smoke of their torment mean? Annihilationists say that the smoke ascending doesn't necessarily mean anyone is actually suffering in hell, much like the smoke rose from Sodom even after it and all those in it are destroyed. 
But the language in this case is not the smoke of their destruction, but rather the smoke of their torment. This is not the residual smoke of past judgment, but is the ongoing smoke of their ongoing suffering. Add to this, the smoke will eventually go out if there is nothing to burn. The ongoing smoke points to unending judgment. We also need to notice that it says, they have no rest, day or night. Annihilationist ideas run right contrary to this text. Those in hell have no rest, day and night, forever and ever. The sufferings of hell are inescapable and eternal. Similar language is found in Revelation 20 verse 10, speaking of the judgment of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. The judgment of the devil and his minions is certainly an eternal judgment. Will mankind experience the same judgment? Jesus, in the very familiar parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, speaks of the final judgment wherein he will divide between the righteous and the sinner. The righteous will inherit the kingdom, but the sinner is cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The everlasting fire endured by the sinner is the same as the fire endured by the devil and his angels. So it seems that Revelation 20 verse 10 describes what will be experienced by Satan and by all who follow him. Torment, day and night, forever and ever. So when scripture speaks of everlasting judgment or eternal fire suffered by the sinner, the natural understanding is that the judgment or the fire will be experienced eternally. We contort the text to make it say, everlasting judgment, which is eternally ceasing to exist, or to say, everlasting fire experienced by no one. The natural sense of scripture is that the eternal fire will be suffered eternally by sinners, sinners in a resurrected body who consciously experience the judgment consequent for their own sin. I want to emphasize again that the main question in this discussion is not, which view of hell do I like? It's not, which view of hell is the kindest? Or, which view portrays God most palatably? The question is, quite simply, what does the Bible say? Or more to the point, what has God chosen to reveal about hell through Scripture? We can't play fast and loose with the Word of God while claiming to be submitted to Him. In the end, the only question that matters is, what has God said? The main issue with conditional immortality, as I see it, is that it seeks to fit something into Scripture that could never be deduced from Scripture. The approach seems to be, can I make this fit into Scripture, rather than, what's the plain meaning of the text? Linguistic gymnastics and fancy verbiage make conditional immortality seem appealing and biblical, but it fails the test in the end. This is not the end of the discussion. In fact, I plan to commit at least three more episodes to this issue. In the first, we'll take a closer look at Psalm 37, a text often referenced where it says, The wicked shall be no more. After that, we'll look in depth at a few of the key Greek words. Then we'll spend some time discussing what several early Anabaptists believed about hell, and wrap it up by discussing the consequences of embracing conditional immortality as an acceptable view of hell, of embracing it or allowing it to run rampant as an acceptable and alternative view of hell. Some of you may know this already. Uh, This series closely follows a longer essay I wrote on conditional immortality. If you'd like to have the entire discussion on paper and in one place, or if you want a sneak peek at where we're headed, 
write me at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com to request the full paper. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Touchpoints podcast. This podcast is a production of Sword and Trumpet Ministries. For more information, visit swordandtrumpet.org slash podcast or theologicaltouchpoints.com slash podcast. If you have thoughts or questions, you can contact us at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it.